All right. Well, I am now joined by uh, Matt McManus um, and Nathan Robinson, two people who I think uh, need no introduction here. Uh, but um, they, uh, you know, they're both um, they're both people I've, uh, I've I've co-written articles with and whose work uh, whose uh, Solo work I enjoy quite a bit, and they just uh, co-wrote something for the first time, which was uh, which was about uh, Douglas Murray, uh, which um, which is interesting to me because the uh, the there's this uh, YouTube um, channel where I go on to do debates sometime, and they they asked me recently uh, they were the, you know they were the ones who brought it up if I wanted to do one with him. And uh, I said, yeah, maybe. And I talked about about it. I was like, yeah, if I did it, like, what should I do it about? And came back with something about nationalism. And then they uh, pitched it to him. And uh, since then, there's been radio silence. Maybe his email's backed up. Hmm. But hmm. Um, Seems yeah. so often this happens. Very strange. It, it does. It unusual. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> uh, but I read, your, uh, I read you guys' uh, review of his new book. With uh, with great interest, right? So, um, so, so, Matt, you want to start us up here? Who is this guy? Sure. So, Douglas Murray uh, is an English political commentator. Uh, although he talks a lot about U.S. politics and world politics as well, uh, he kind of first burst onto the scene, if you want, in the mid two thousands with an apologia for neoconservatism. Uh, doesn't really talk about that all that much now, since neoconservatism's <laughs> reputation is. Right. Pretty much about as low as it can go. Uh, but since then, uh, he kind of emerged like a phoenix from the ashes uh, in 2017 uh, with a book, The Strange Death of Europe, which basically argues that Europe is dying uh, because of a flood of migrants coming from non-European countries. Uh, this is another theme that he brings up in his most recent book, The War on the West. Uh, but another text that he wrote that became pretty fashionable with the anti-woke crowd uh, was The Madness of Crowds, uh, which talks about you know, woke culture how it's destroying world civilizations and undermining our faith in our basic institutions, that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. So that, that definitely, uh, that definitely paints a picture. That's, that's kind of funny too. You guys do get into this a little bit of the review, but I mean, this reminds me of, um, actually a conversation that I had with Nathan, uh, at the, uh, DSA convention here in Atlanta in, uh, 2017, about how this entity that all these guys are so worried about protecting you know, the West, the uh, the board, the um, like the definition of borders of that are I think at best unclear. Uh, I think would be a fair way of saying that, right? So it's like, okay, uh, we know that you don't just count as you know, like like Ben Shapiro in his book The Right Side of History, uh, which I unfortunately have read. Right, you know, he he talks about how. It's the combination of uh, that the you know the West is a combination of uh, Judeo-Christian monotheism, which is a phrase he uses constantly. Uh, I always thought it you know it's a shame that uh, Ben wasn't born into some nice, nice Episcopalian family so he could stop use the, using that uh, awkward phrase. But Judeo-Christian um, uh, religion and, uh, and and Greek philosophy is basically what he says. But by that definition, Islam should count as part of the West. And clearly, if it's meant to exclude anything, uh, it's meant to exclude that. And as I remember Nathan pointed out in that conversation, 
five years ago. Um, you know who should really count as the West, even if we're even if we're just like limiting ourselves to Christianity. Uh, Roman Catholics coming in from uh, Central and South America, but so, somehow that definitely doesn't seem to be the West either. Yeah, it's very strange that, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it yeah, well, the, the first thing you do when people start talking about the West is ask them to, to you know, point it out on a map where exactly the West is and what the characteristics are that let countries into the West. And I, you know, there are all these there are all these places that, by any definition other than it's white people, um, the uh, the category breaks down very quickly. Is Latin America the West? Well, it should be because, as you point out, it's a bunch of Catholics. Um, and uh, uh, Matt uh, pointed out in this uh, in, in one of his contributions to what we wrote, and also that uh, uh, there are plenty of African countries that should also be part of the West, right? There's Christianity mm-hmm. in Africa, there's democracy in Africa. Um, and, you know, Murray, uh, <laughs> in this book, uh, is pretty open about the fact that when he says the West, he uh, he means white people. That's what he means. That's, he says, that's the, when we say we want to protect the West, we mean we want to protect white people. Yeah. yeah. And that's just one of the things I want to add, which is what makes this book kind of unique and interesting uh, is precisely that it's kind of a gentrified apologia uh, for ethno-chauvinism uh, and kind of a modest white nationalism, if there is such a thing. Right? And I'm being kind of cheeky here. Because uh, a lot of times when left-wing critics ask conservatives this kind of question, well, what do you mean by the West? They will tie themselves into knots, trying not to go to that conclusion that has something uh-huh. to do with race. And there is something that's kind of refreshing in a perverse sense about Murray just not even really bothering with any of those loop-de-loopy kinds of logics and just coming out and saying, you know, by the West, I mean essentially uh, white countries and their offspring societies. Yeah, the offspring societies is an interesting out, right? Uh, that, because, you know, you might wonder what that means, right? If the, uh, if, um, if the United States uh, and Australia count as offspring societies, which he explicitly says, then, you know, uh, what's the standard here? Because I know it's not like all the countries that were, you know, that were originally British colonies, because that would have a very different result. Um, it's not even all the countries that speak English and used to be British colonies. That's that's clearly not good enough either, or speak French, my God. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so so he you, you quote a very long passage in the review where he... Um, uh, he's quoted Mark Lamont Hill asking somebody what he likes about being white, and uh, and he he gives this like two pages of like what he would say if he were asked what he likes about about being white, um, and it was an answer that like he lists off a bunch of accomplishments that by the way are not you know a lot of them are definitely not exclusive to white people, but um, but well, it also in cancer uh, he does say. <laughs> He says no First Nation wisdom ever delivered a cure for cancer. Yes, it's interesting because I wasn't. I it was news to me that cancer had been cured by white people. But uh, yeah, aren't yeah, you happy to hear that though? I mean, now we can all rest easy, right? You know, go out and smoke news. as many cigarettes as you want. You know, yeah, because thank you, white it's not people. an issue anymore. Yeah, um, it, it also. I mean, the whole thing reminds me of there's a uh, uh, comedian I really like, Doug Stanhope, who has this riff about nationalism making people proud of things that they had absolutely nothing to do with 
and he uh, he talks about you know people being like, oh yeah, the French, you know, those crybabies, you know, we saved them during World War II. He's like, wait a second, we we did, you and I, we we saved the French. I don't remember that, you know. I mean, I uh, you know was, was was like, was I just drinking that much? I forgot that we saved France. Um, and it's like all these things, you know. It's like this. I don't know. It, it's just uh, there's there's just something funny about it on that level, right? It's like okay, nobody's cured cancer, but like all the sort of medical and scientific achievements he is bragging about. Um, you know, Douglas Murray didn't do any of that. He was writing books about politics. Yeah, and he was writing books arguing that we should invade countries, and that later produced unspeakable horror uh, across the world. So, if we're talking in terms of individual contributions to human society, maybe he would belong a little bit further down the list. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, but but it is interesting, right? Because um, presumably, even Douglas Murray doesn't think there's something magical about skin color uh, that like makes people um you know that like just like how much melanin you do you have is uh is is going to make you more able to to do you know medical research for example um so which which makes it particularly strange to to make you know to make this his answer to what what do you like about being white right like because it's not even it's not even like what do you like about being, you know, whatever, you know, um, a, uh, you know, like part of the, you know, like like it's not even like being an English speaker or something, right? It's 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 whiteness in general, you know, white people as a uh, as a as a collective hive mind uh, did this, and it's really it's a really weird designation, right? Because it's like uh, I I assume. That on interrogation, his view would be like, well, there are just these certain cultural things that just so happens that, like, white people are, are the ones who have them. Yeah, I, I would know. say so. And, I mean, this is one of the things that I was pretty critical of, especially, which is that what's frustrating about these kind of approaches that make huge generalizing statements about Western civilization is Murray isn't even as sophisticated as a critic uh, that he likes to harp on about, like Edward Said. Because one of the things like that Said was very gifted at was pointing out that, look, uh, European countries are extremely diverse. Uh, the philosophies that you can find in European philosophy are also very diverse. I mean, Nietzsche and Rousseau, I hate to break it to you, Ben, say very different things about how the world is. Uh, and the political and economic systems of all those countries can be extremely varied. Uh, so what he does by making these kind of crude very, very inaccurate kind of generalizations about all these countries is actually do a disservice to the very heritage he's trying to defend because uh, he didn't appreciate its internal complexity, its richness, and the fact that many of these countries believe very, very different things. Yeah, so uh, is Murray, like defenders of Western civilization uh, tend to come in two flavors when it comes to the, uh, the history of Western thought, right? There are the people who, there are the people who think that like, the Enlightenment was the most amazing thing of all time. Um, and uh, and then I guess you've got your, like, Yoram Hazoni types who sort of think it was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll let Nathan uh, tackle this one because I have a pretty long comment that I want to say about that that actually draws in some of the post-liberal stuff that you and I have talked about before. Um, well, you say I, I think uh, I think Murray is on the uh, on the Enlightenment train because uh, a great deal of uh, the 
accomplishment, the Western accomplishments that he lays out are to do with the progress of uh, the, the, the wondrous scientific and technological progress that we have bequeathed uh, to our lessers. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that the everybody else, uh, everybody else should be grateful. Um, yeah, which which again uh, really makes you wonder if he does think that there's something there's something magical about uh, about skin color because presumably, if not, right? I mean, this is a point you you guys make in the review that like everything that he says is consistent with just thinking, well, these are the countries that were historically the most most powerful um or at least some of them were and so they were able to enrich themselves at the expense of much of the rest of the world and if you make that assumption all of this stuff makes sense right that you would have all of these and you know i mean yeah obviously white people didn't cure cancer because nobody's cured cancer obviously lots of people have made scientific and medical advances who weren't white but uh but that like certain kinds of uh technology and science and etc would be concentrated in the wealthiest countries with the most resources uh, the most people with leisure time uh, etc does sort of make sense on the face of it and if you think that that's true presumably you think that you would have to think that in a world where somebody else had ended up being the richest countries they would have had all that stuff well, well man, i mean yeah. the the other thing that he says is that in defense of the West, he says, you know, a, a, a real knockdown piece of evidence that he says he's providing is that people, migrants, want to come to Western countries and not, and not to the developing world. Uh-huh. As, the, as we point out, you know, but okay, let's consider an alternate theory where some people are just richer than others because they, through violent conquest, took a lot of the world's wealth for themselves. Wouldn't it also be the case in that purely hypothetical alternate hypothesis that you would have large numbers of people wanting to enter the wealthier societies without it saying anything about the uniquely wondrous cultural gifts that those societies have? Well, and to put a put a finer uh, point on that, right, I mean, he... Uh, Murray mentions China in a way that doesn't quite acknowledge that China, you know, is obviously a very geopolitically important country and, you know, and, and is wildly economically growing and all of that, but is also still very much a developing country, right? You know, overall. Uh, that, uh, But he doesn't mention, say, Japan, right? Which, as I understand it, has incredibly strict immigration laws, which presumably they wouldn't have enacted if nobody wanted to live there. Yeah, and I'd also like to point out that you don't even need to go back into the relatively distant past uh, in order to see examples of this kind of self-serving reasoning on Murray's part. Uh, so, for instance, in his 2017 book, he spends a lot of time talking about so-called migrants coming from the Middle East, most of whom are fleeing the Syrian civil war. Uh, and, of course, one of the things that he doesn't really discuss at great length, uh, and certainly not very reasonably, uh, is the fact that a lot of the catalysts for the Syrian civil war uh, we are European and American countries are directly responsible for, right? Uh, whether you're talking about the division uh, of the region along very artificial boundaries after the First World War, uh, or the invasion of Iraq, which destabilized the region, uh, the region, all these things contributed to the conflict uh, and ended up leaving millions and millions of people destitute. Uh, he thinks these people are migrating to Europe purely because it has a higher standard of living, uh, while ignoring all this culpability those countries have in creating the conditions for them needing to flee in the first place. But, of course, 
he doesn't want to deal with all that complexity in that book or on this one because that might mean he needs to rethink his fundamental premises, and that's not something that Murray is very gifted at. But there's something pretty galling, isn't there, about advocating wars that destroy countries, and then when people flee from those countries to your country, seeing it as proof that your country is, is better. Right, right, right. So, right. What, what did uh, Megyn Kelly, I think, say on Fox News in the aftermath of the Afghan withdrawal when they were dealing with refugees coming in? She's like, look, we can't be held responsible for every mistake that we happen to make. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, we're just going to be dealing with this litany of people trying to come in. I know. <laughs> I mean, my God, who doesn't... Account- like, we're all... We're all human. Who doesn't, occa- who doesn't occasionally fuck up and cluster bomb, invade, and occupy for 20 years a country that then collapses? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind that of innocent mistake anybody could make. Long. Exactly. And, like, what makes me so frustrated by this is, look, if you were the kind of conservative like Roger Scruton, uh, who is at least slightly critical of the Iraq War, then maybe you could get away with saying, look, not our right. problem. Uh, but Murray was one of those people who was directly advocating for it back in the 2000s. Uh, and he played a role in influencing public opinion uh, that exacerbated the very problems that he now doesn't want to take responsibility for. Uh, and it's hard not to sit there and think that that's pretty hypocritical at, very, at best, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so I do want to take uh, – we've got a call, and I do want to take the caller in a second. But, uh, but, but I do want to talk about a couple of specific things that you – uh, that you mentioned uh, in, uh, in in the piece, one of which you kind of hinted at uh, already, right? You know, which is, you know, you make this point, which is is one that I always like to see that um, that for somebody who's supposed to be a, a big defender of the West and the Western tradition, um, like Murray doesn't actually seem to know that much about it. That they uh, that you you gave an example in the uh, in the article. About uh, about his, um, you know, you gave an example in the article about uh, about his his sort of use of Nietzsche in a way that doesn't quite acknowledge, oh, that, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that, that Nietzsche this and Murray are, Matt off specifically. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite acknowledge that Nietzsche and Murray are not on the same side of the Christianity question, uh, and yeah. uh, and like. And there's also this thing that, like, apparently he does in this book where he's, he, he does this, like, um, you know, like, I see a lot of this from conservatives and from sort of um, a certain kind of a grief centrist where they'll, they'll talk about how, like, all of the, the sort of great figures in the history of Western philosophy have, uh, have been, like, canceled or denounced or whatever. And, 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 it, and it always seems strange to me, right? Because, like... Like, I remember um, there was an article by Andrew Sullivan a little while back. I wrote about it for Jacobin, uh, where Sullivan was like, well, how come Karl Marx hasn't been, you know, canceled along with human content and everybody? And it's like, well, I don't understand what that means. Because, um, I mean, I have, I mean, I, you know, not full-time anymore, you know, but I still do, like, one class a semester. I have... I've never spent a semester where I didn't assign Kant. I've never heard of somebody who taught a philosophy class and didn't assign Kant, right? The the suggestion has never been whispered to me that you're that like it would that like anybody would disapprove of assigning Kant, right? I mean like it just seems to me like 
there are people who have like talked about the fact that Kant said some racist things and like wrestled with that, right? But I mean, like that—that's—that's that's obviously pretty consistent with like still thinking that you should read Kant. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just a little, by way of background, uh, the Nietzsche section was actually originally a lot longer because uh, <laughs> I was kind of triggered by it. And then Nathan very sensibly was like, "We should probably tear that down." And, 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 you know, but it's important. It's emblematic of the way that he kind of treats this material. Uh, and by the way, I'm not the only one who thinks this, which kind of circles around back what I was saying before, because uh, Murray spends a lot of time in this book waxing poetic about declining Christian morality and how people don't venerate our sacred images anymore, particularly our Christian images. Uh, and then later on in the book, he talks a great deal about you know, how leftists don't appreciate uh, you know, all the stuff that they've been given, and this is a signi- sorry, and this is an indication of resentiment, as this Nietzsche said. Nowhere does he deal with the fact that Nietzsche was very explicit about the fact that at the root, he believed, at least, of all these progressive movements was Christianity, right? Christianity is the basis of socialism, liberalism, and democracy. Uh, and if he were alive today, he'd probably look at all the kind of woke activists that Murray spends a lot of time complaining about and say, oh, here are contemporary secular Christians. Now, whether you agree with that or not, it's an interesting viewpoint. It's complicated. It makes you think a little bit. Uh, and Murray, instead of dealing with all that complexity, just decides that he wants to have it both ways. You know, Cherry pick an idea from Nietzsche here, check all the rest of his analysis that doesn't actually agree with his two sentiments, and then advocate for Judeo-Christian values elsewhere where that gets him the kind of result he wants. Uh, and it's a really lazy sloppy uh, and disrespectful way of treating uh, whatever else you want to call him, at least a very interesting, dynamic thinker, right? Uh, and I'm not the only one who thinks this about his work, by the way. Uh, probably the best review of Murray's book that I've read, aside from ours, uh, was actually written by Patrick Denis in Compact Magazine, uh, The Anti-Woke Girondist Lament, uh, where Denis basically points out how Murray is also very selective with the way he treats liberal tradition. Uh, so he'll sit there and talk about enlightenment values and enlightenment liberalism, up to the point where, you know, certain people who identify with the liberal tradition are advocating for policies that he doesn't like, in which case all of a sudden he turns around and says that they've gone too far, right? So there's these very selective ways uh, and lazy ways of approaching the tradition throughout his work. Yeah, I, I, I think that sometimes, I mean, I mean it's, it's funny to bring that, you know, I obviously debated uh, Sora Bamare, one of the founders of Compact, last night on the show. And, and and I will say credit where credit's due. I mean, sometimes they are good on stuff like that because because I think they've um, as as uh, <laughs> as uh, extremely unfond as I am of uh, of post liberalism. I think that uh, liberalism, you know, if by liberalism we mean not like the stuff that Democrats think, uh, but um, but like you know, the sort of enlightenment values about like having a pluralist society where people can live their lives the way they want to live them and all that, that I actually think liberalism in that sense is very good. But, um, but I think that because they reject it so thoroughly, I think sometimes it lets them see some things a little bit more clearly uh, than, uh, than other critics do. Right. So I actually loved Sorab's uh, response to uh, Yoram Hazoni where he, he basically points out, what are you doing, right? You're treating, like, liberalism as the devil, but, like, your big alternative and that's, like, supposed to be your, like, anti-liberal return to tradition thing is nationalism. Nationalism is only about as old as liberalism, right? I mean, the two, uh, the two came into existence in about the same historical period. I mean, if you're, like, Metternich's in, you know, early 19th century Europe, you see these as sort of twin subversive ideologies, Um 
And so, yeah, I, th- I think in that same sort of spirit, I could actually see Deneen, uh, you know, being good at nailing Murray in the uh, in the contradictions about this. Like, as you know, as little as I like the fact that they reject the uh, the alignment stuff, um, it is at least more consistent, right? Than uh, than somebody like Murray wanting to celebrate it, but also, um, you know, but also he's he likes Nietzsche sometimes when it's convenient. Uh, ignores all the stuff that goes against it. And by the way, in terms, you know, the point you made about Nietzsche saying, you know, liberalism and socialism and Christianity is all sort of the, um, um, is all sort of bound up in the same stuff that he rejects. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is a really basic point, but I think it's always worth making what came on. Like, if, if these guys, like, if defense of, like, the West was really their big thing, you don't you know what they shouldn't have the slightest problem with would be Marxism, right? I mean, nothing, uh, nothing's, more, nothing's more European than Marxism, you know, in terms of its historical, uh, its historical trajectory, you know, deep roots and, uh, and enlightenment ideas there, you know. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, you know, developed by, by, by Germans who got excited about reading Hegel and then, then reading English political economy. I mean, like, that's, that's super-duper European, right? You know, but... Um, you know, the fact that they want to present, like, the anti-socialist stuff as somehow a defense of, of, uh, of the West, you know, makes me think that they're not, you know, that, like, all of the stuff about the West is just kind of a weird red herring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's worth noting that his, the closest thing to a rebuttal of Marx in the book, because Marx does get a few pages uh, dedicated to him, uh, where he's addressing issues like this, is just to point out that, well, Marx also said a lot of racist and anti-Semitic things also, and yet he hasn't been canceled, uh, despite the fact that he's without any redeeming value, or so Murray asserts. So, you know, isn't there a hypocrisy there? And that's a kind of child's way uh, of dealing with political philosophy, right? Now, don't get me wrong, Marx did say a lot of things that I think were pretty bad uh, on a lot of those issues. You know, he's a 19th century guy. Uh, but I don't think that any of them are really intrinsic uh, to the main arguments that he's making. So it's yet another example of Murray just kind of lazily deciding uh, that he's not going to deal with anybody's complicated thinking on any given subject matter that he's not prepared to deal with. So he's just going to kind of tarnish them as quickly as possible, call people who like that person a hypocrite, and then walk on his way. Very, very, very shallow way of analyzing things. You know, the word lazy has come up a few times, and honestly, it, it, uh, it's kind of the main impression reading Murray's books. A lot of the times, yeah. he's repeating talking points that are very, very common on the right, right? Uh, the, the, this book, the, the, the Attack on the West, has been written over and over, the, the, these types of books. Jonah Goldberg wrote Suicide of the West. Pat Buchanan wrote the Decline of the West. Uh, something about the West. You know, they're always lamenting the West. Douglas Murray takes these conservative arguments and repeats them and I have to say makes them in a more intellectually lazy fashion than almost any other conservative and then sells more books than any other conservative. The books are really, really sell very well. He gets millions of YouTube views. But the intellectual quality of his work is just so, so low. I mean, usually, I have to say, usually you don't find outright glaring factual errors in this stuff where it's clear they just didn't even look at the source. Usually conservatives, like, you find bad arguments, bad values, but but it's rare to actually find just 
And we found things that were just just completely not true, where it's clear he didn't even look them up. I mean, he he doesn't. And the Edward Said stuff, which we which we dwell on, where he just doesn't understand. He goes on and on critiquing someone whose ideas he just doesn't. He hasn't even read the book. Like he hasn't read the books that he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I should say, right? Like um, you. I mean, part of what part of what makes us frustrated is like I think that um, you know I think there are people who actually know what they're talking about who who have uh, who have written like um, you know who have written like I, I I think pretty compelling critiques of certain things that Syed says, but I mean like. Um, you know, you can look at uh, uh, Vivek Chibber's essay in Catalyst, uh, Orientalism and its Afterlives, where I should say he's building on the, the work of, uh, of, uh, of, of Arab scholars, Marxist scholars who've, who've criticized Said in the past. And, but, like, as I was reading this, I just, like, they're just, like, over and over again. You guys just kind of nail him on, like, okay, he says this, but come on, in the book he's talking about, right? Saeed says X, Y, and Z. And it's, like, especially, especially like, the idea, um, like, the silliest thing that you could say about this is that this guy who was, like, a... Uh, a talented, you know, a talented classical pianist who, uh, um, you know, who like loved Jane Austen novels and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That he's just like that, that, that he's just hostile to, to Western culture. I mean, right. Like that, the, uh, the guy, um, you know, Edward Said, you know, reveled in Western culture. He loved Western culture. Yeah, and I want to point out, sometimes the mistakes become even more glaring than the ones that Nathan mentioned, although those are pretty damn bad. Uh, I mean, on page 80 of the book, he said, when he's trying to respond to uh, an argument that, you know, Western cultures are, you know, basically, you know, the greatest ever. He says, you know, people these days don't actually know very much about our history. They don't even know very much about the history of other cultures. And it's time they learn, because actually Western civilization has accomplished a tremendous deal. Uh, flash forward four pages later, four pages later, uh, he's trying to respond to people who say the West needs to learn more uh, about, you know, the history of slavery, the history of oppression that's gone on. And Murray's like, you know, it turns out that actually people in the West know a great deal about slavery and a great deal about the history of other countries. Thank you very much. And you're like, well, which is it, Murray? Do people not know a lot about our history and not a lot about the history of other countries, like you say on page 80? Or is it that we know a tremendous amount about our history and a tremendous amount about the history of other countries, like you say on page 84? Because you can't have it both ways when the argument just happens to be convenient. So it's just another example of this very slapdash uh, kind of urge to move towards the easiest conservative talking point wherever it happens to be convenient to kind of emphasize the rhetoric that he's impressed by at any given point. Yeah. All right. I want to uh, want to start taking calls. Uh, so um, going to try to get everybody, but I'm going to since the other two callers are people I recognize from the past, I uh, just want to make sure people who haven't uh, um, who uh, who haven't uh, had their voices heard yet are able to do so. So we switch down to Jenny. Jenny, what's on your mind? I was anticipating that. Thank you. Um, I read the article, and I love Murray. I love Andrew Doyle. I, I think these guys are working hard to preserve free speech, 
And so I wonder what you think about the recent deplatforming of people like, um, well, heck, the swatting of people like Steve Bannon and the others who are tied to what I would perceive to be a free speech movement. How do you feel about those people being cut off certain social media platforms and just having their voices censored in, a, in what I perceive to be an unfair way? I'm not so concerned about the scholarly works and the tit for tat with other intellectuals. I'm more concerned about freedom of expression. All right, but uh, you want to uh, you want to start us up on that, Nathan? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for uh, reading the article. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I think we have to distinguish pretty clearly between you know the the substance of the of the arguments and the and the question of free speech, free expression. Some of the cases that you mentioned, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the details of, but I think I think there is probably based on what I know about Ben. Matt and myself, we are pretty much in the camp of leftists who are very strongly pro-free expression and pro-free speech and in fact think it's counterproductive to shut down speakers we disagree with. And in fact, I, I personally have been very, very frustrated by the deplatformings of conservatives because I think... You know, for me, I want to have those intellectual arguments about about what is being said in the books. I don't really want to have a debate about whether who can who can right. speak. You know, and so it takes the debate to a place that I think where I think the people I disagree with are on pretty firm ground, and I don't want them to be on firm ground. I want them to be on the ground where I think I've got a good case to make, which is not in suppressing their speech. But in disagree, you know, in going through their scholarship. Well, thank you for yeah. saying that out loud because I really appreciate that posture. I love Gavin McInnes. I thought his work on Twitter and just the other spaces he inhabited on YouTube were wonderful spaces for someone like me to hang out intellectually. And so I was troubled when he was so censored and so shut away from the voices, especially around elections. That, yeah, let me. You know, we need to be able to talk. Yeah, so so I, I, I guess I, let me just let me just say a couple things about that. And actually, sorry, before I do, Matt, did you want to add anything to what Nathan said? Uh, yeah, no, just very briefly. Uh, I completely agree with what Nathan said. You know, I tend to believe very strongly in free speech. I think that there are some exceptions to that that we would all agree on. You know, I don't think that you should be able to walk into a crowded movie theater and yell, yell fire. Uh, and I don't think that anything like child pornography is acceptable in any given society. But when it comes to political discourse, I think we should be extremely selective uh, about what kinds of speech should be censored. Uh, and that includes uh, showing respect towards authors that I profoundly disagree with, like Murray or like Steve Bannon. Uh, and like Nathan, I really don't have a lot of interest in seeing these people censored because I think it's important for them to articulate their arguments precisely because I think they are very bad. Uh, and when they do articulate them and they are confronted by other arguments, they'll be shown to be bad uh, and can be shown to be bad. Uh, and I think this urge to censor that some on the left will sometimes get into is really an expression of defeatism, right? Uh, there's this idea that conservative arguments, even if they are bad, uh, they'll just gain traction uh, amongst the public. I tend to believe that when people are confronted with better arguments, uh, they lean towards that way of looking at it. Yeah, uh, that's I, not universally true, but it's mostly true. And yeah, I think it's foundational to democracy that we hold to that. Yeah, I would 
okay, so I agree with everything that both both Nathan and uh, and Matt uh, said. Uh, I guess I would just add a couple things. One of them um, is that I think for left politics in particular, uh, even if <laughs> you know. I'm not saying there's any guarantee. I mean, clearly there are plenty of terrible and popular ideas, but I think at some basic level, right? If you're not confident that you can um, that you could win on that ground, right? You know that uh, that you don't you don't believe in the sort of ability of ordinary people to uh, to sort out uh, what they think uh, and um, and to to be exposed to every point of view and listen to all all the arguments and, and make up their own minds. I mean, if you, if you don't believe in that. Then I don't think that really fits with socialist politics in particular, which are based on you know what CLR James say, right? Every cook could govern, right? You know, belief in, uh, that you want to profoundly empower ordinary people to to run society for themselves. So I absolutely agree on that level. I also agree that it's often counterproductive. You know, deplatforming is often counterproductive. Now, I do not love Douglas Murray, Gavin McGinnis, or uh, or any of those other people. One of the many reasons I don't love them is that I don't actually think they're often that serious about that stuff, right? So, like, um, you know, if, you know, like, one of the points that I made, actually, the article came out yesterday in the Daily Beast that I wrote, is um, is that, uh, is that look, if you really want, you know, and I, I agree with you on some of the social media platforming stuff, if I had my way, uh, social media would be run as a public utility and it would have very clear and transparent rules with lots of due process that aired on the side of protected uh, free speech uh, outside of you know the most extreme cases like child porn or whatever that Matt just listed off. I would point out, by the way, that phrase, shouted fire at a crowded theater. If you go back and look at the original origin of that uh, analogy, that was from a uh, Supreme Court case upholded uh, when Oliver Wendell Holmes was upholding the conviction of some Jewish socialists who were arrested for uh, distributing anti-war leadership literature during World War One. Uh, so uh, there's some there's an argument to be had about what counts as a real fire and who gets to decide. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I agree with all that. But then I would also point out a lot of these right wing figures. Uh, I, I guess I just want to make two points about this. Uh, one of them is that uh, is that a lot of these. Um, a lot of these right-wing figures I don't really think are as serious as they could be about free speech because if you're really serious about free speech, well, look, in the contemporary United States, um, it's enough of a democracy that, no, that like almost nobody, with rare exceptions, is worried that like they're going to be imprisoned uh, for, for their speech. That's not what they're worried about. What are they really worried about? They're worried they're going to get fired. For, uh, say, people, people in Europe are being put in prison because of what they read on Facebook. So, so yeah, they are, they are afraid of being... Well, you'll, noti- you'll notice that that sentence started with the United States, uh, not Europe, no, but, but yeah. UK. Yes, which is also not the United States, but I disagree well, with, that, Murray, with, that, with that, policy, is... that policy in the uh, that policy in the UK. But I'd also say that because most people aren't really worried in the United States, at least, and I think for the most part of the UK, although I absolutely agree with you about those cases... Uh, aren't worried about being in prison. They're worried about being fired. And I think if you're really serious about free speech, what you should be all about is trying to make it harder to fire people, which means strengthening labor unions and making it easier to organize labor unions. And all of those people support politicians who support exactly the opposite of that. Last point I would just make is, uh, is this one, which is, okay, yes, we all agree about free speech. Fantastic. But what's the point of that? The point of that is that we want to be able to have a discussion about the ideas itself. So let's do that, right? Let's not just, you know, well, talk about... 
pretty troubled by the popularity of his work. And Doug Murray, I don't even think he counts himself as a right-wing person. And his colleague, Andrew Doyle, who writes the fabulous Twitter account, Titania McGrath, it's a parody account, mm -hmm. he, is, he is not a right-wing person. He is absolutely left. And these people are just do passionate think, do, about do think, freedom of expression. Well, but he's not just I mean, passionate I about freedom of expression. Just, uh, the book wasn't about freedom of expression. The book was about the West. And so we're, let's take it seriously enough because it is very popular. Let's take it seriously enough to talk about the content of the idea and not divert it from what the content is of what he's saying to whether or not he should say it. Yeah, he should say it. Great. We all agree on that. Now let's talk about the ideas themselves. Yeah, and I should just be clear, just two points to that, that uh, he does identify as conservative, right? I mean, his first book in 2005 was Neoconservatism, Why We Need It, and right? it doesn't get much more blatant than that. Uh, now, it's kind of shifted away from neoconservative uh, right-wing politics, but he's shifted towards other kinds of conservative politics since then. Uh, and secondly, I want to point out that I don't sit there and prejudge an author just because they happen to be right-wing. Uh, you know, there have been books by conservative authors that I've actually written positive reviews of, people like Patrick Deneen uh, or George Will, now, I don't agree sometimes with the substance of what's in there, but I do actually think that the arguments for them are at least interesting uh, or intellectually rigorous. Uh, the problem I have with somebody like Douglas Murray is not only are his arguments for his positions bad, uh, but the positions themselves are bad. So it's just a bad book the whole way around, which is one of the reasons why Nathan and I, I think, were very critical of him in this book. Or, sorry, in this article. All right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jenny. Let's go to... Uh snarf for the next call hey what's up guys hey. that was that was very painful to listen to <laughs> no bad. comment what's uh what else is on your mind <laughs> so so um i don't know i spoke to you before about jordan peterson and i see a, another pattern here with uh with douglas murray um i, I think these people have uh, a set audience that they're targeting and they therefore make the narrative for the audience and it's not so much an intellectual pursuit it's not a piece of journalism it's not anything other than just buy my book right they self-commodify themselves and they turn their whole personality and existence into a product that they push on every single level whether it's a book speaking arrangements and I see a couple of attributes that repeat themselves. One is Nietzsche, which we spoke about Jordan Peterson, which I, I think Nietzsche in the hands of, of a lot of these people is very accessible and easy to use. And we've seen this since, you know, Nazis. The manipulation of Nietzsche is one of the easiest things to, to, to bring into your fold. The other thing is Western civilization, which is an ambiguous term. It's not defined. It doesn't really have a parameter. It's more of, of an idea of, of greatness lost. And the last thing is always the self-reliance, which kind of talks to, to, to the, uh, to the, to the outsiders and the, and the people who don't expect the narrative, who don't accept the narrative as being, you know, people that don't have the capacity and are lazy and worthless. This all ties in together with with them just pushing the same thing over and over again and then the people who consume it like the individual who was on the phone before they tend to it tends to invoke a kind of feeling of 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 uh collective narcissism as eric Fromm would say so what i'm what i'm calling to really really ask you guys 
is if we take a step back, is nationalism, like Eric Fromm explains, a form of collective narcissism? And do you think that that in itself is is probably one of the most critical ingredients that that seems to be in a lot of these writings? Okay, uh, Matt, you want to start us up on that one? Sure. Uh, well, you know, being from a post-national, uh, so-called according to our prime minister, society like Canada, <laughs> uh, I tended to agree with Schopenhauer uh, when he said that, you know, the cheapest form of pride is national pride. Uh, for it betrays in the one thus afflicted the lack of individual qualities of which he could be proud, while he would not otherwise reach for what he shares with so many millions. I, 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 have, to, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm, uh, I've, I've seen a few too many thousand uh, backpacks with maple leaves sewn into them over the years for, uh, for me to completely <laughs> believe that that's a post-national society, but keep going. That's true. I mean, if you played the uh, you know, Fair Naked Ladies or something, maybe I'd get all patriotic. Uh, but, you know, that's not the here nor there. Uh, but look, you know, I tend to think that one of the problems uh, with nationalism uh, is that the authors always treat it as a kind of sublime um, identity, right? Something that pre-exists power and pre-exists various forms of course of social organization. Uh, and one of the things that really comes to the fore, and Ben was actually talking about this a little bit earlier when he was discussing Mazzoni, uh, is the fact that nationalism is actually a very modern thing. Uh, it really only emerged 18th, 19th century, depending on what you did it, and required a tremendous amount of state organization uh, and various forms of nationalist, usually right-wing nationalist pedagogies, in order to get people to think that way. Uh, and so when people like Murray try to appeal to nationalism in order to justify their various policies, like it's some kind of timeless uh, or sublime identity, what we need to do as leftists is completely point out that, is consistently point out that they're really just full of shit, right? Uh, that there's nothing necessary about belonging to this national identity. There's certainly nothing morally significant about it, as far as I can see. Uh, and what we should be looking at and prioritizing is other things uh, that have a lot more tangibility to them. Uh, like, how is it that we can actually make people materially better off, regardless of where it is that they have to come from? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I... I agree with somebody like Nathan, uh, who argues that we should take a more consequentialist uh, outlook. Uh, he puts this out in his new book on consensus. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, this is always the amazing thing when people get into these, like, mind-numbingly stupid arguments about, like, when they're, people are, like, dissing on the nationalists they don't like from a nationalist perspective, and they'll say, like, oh, you know, Ukraine isn't a real nation historically, or, you know, or whatever, you know, Palestinians, Israelis, or whatever aren't, and it's like, what the, I don't, I don't understand what that, what that means, right? Like, you understand that none of this shit is more than a few hundred years old, right? Like, uh, it was uh, up until, like, like it was a big deal in the early stages of the French Revolution when they, uh, they you know, before they completely dethroned Louis, when uh, he was officially redesignated as the king of the French, because, like, that implied that there was this French nation that was separate from the king, which was revolutionary uh, in itself at the time, right? I mean, one of the biggest things I got out of the Mike Duncan um revolutions podcast the french revolution season is that the existence of the french language itself was to a great extent a national project that was initiated by the jacobins that like in 1789 if you go from like paris to rome every village that you go in between them you get a dialect that starts to sound a little bit less like what we would think of as french and a little bit more like what you think of as italian with shaded actually having a uniform national language was like a revolutionary national state uh, project, right? I mean, it's it's all kind of nonsense, and you know, and I I don't 
I don't know. I mean, I've spent a lot of, you know, over the years, it's occurred to me many times that uh, if the uh, if the national border that's, that's closest to uh, where I grew up uh, was shifted about 90 minutes uh, drive uh, southward, uh, I would have... Uh, I would never have had to worry about health insurance, which you know, which would have been nice. But um, you know, listen to a lot more tragically hit. So there we go. Uh, Nathan, do you have anything to add to that before we go to chase? Well, the caller asked about uh, narcissism and nationalism, and I, I know there are defenders of nationalism who would insist that you can have strong nationalist feelings without having feelings of national superiority. Um, but in practice, it doesn't seem to uh, occur very much. And in Murray, certainly, you see, uh, you know, Matt mentioned the ethno-chauvinism, the belief in, in the superiority of the West. There is, in his work, an arrogance that uh, is pretty dangerous. I mean, one of the points that we make is that there is a connection between Murray's feeling that the West is superior to all of the other peoples of the Earth and his support for the Iraq War and his belief that because the West is so rational and so enlightened, the things that a war like that could succeed. Obviously, it was a horrible catastrophe and he was wrong and unreasonable which he hasn't really reckoned with. But we talk about the, the arrogance of, of imperialism. So there is a real danger to the kind of narcissism or chauvinism uh, that, that, that often comes along with, um, with nationalism. The, the one other thing that Kohler mentioned was the, the, these ideas of the book and the person as a product. Uh, I, I definitely got that sense reading um, more yeah. on the West because... You can tell that Murray isn't trying to enter into an intellectual discussion where we have arguments and we figure out. Uh, I, I mean, he's almost certainly not going to respond to our review. Uh, you do get the sense that they're not actually trying to have a debate because they don't even they don't even bother to cite sources that uh, would back up what they're which, saying. Which is so, which is what yeah. one, one reason why the sort of uh, diversion of the conversation to free speech is aggravating because, like, I mean, beyond the fact that, like, right. yes, Douglas Murray is clearly a right-winger, uh, if you, uh, you know, if you, if all you wanted was people who weren't necessarily right-wingers but supported free speech, you know, then, uh, uh, man, do I have a list of people you could be into instead of Douglas Murray and Gavin McGinnis, uh, who, uh, by the way, Gavin McGinnis, I did debate once. It lasted for about 10 minutes before he hung up on, he called me a, uh, a glib C-word and hung up on me. Uh, but, um, <laughs> the, uh, but so can I ask you guys one quick question? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just well, I, I was just going to say though, just real quick though, right? Like one of the reasons I find that frustrated, I guess I said this earlier, but just to, like underlined it and circle it in a different way is like, what is the value of free speech? Like, um, presumably some of the, at least part of the reason why we care about free speech is because we want to like actually talk this stuff out. We want to be able to have a debate about these ideas, and uh, and so it it seems really perverse to me to like try to like try to make the conversation about whether you can say that stuff instead of actually enjoying the fruits of free speech and uh, and talking about whether what you're saying makes any sense whatsoever. But sorry, please, so, you were saying. 
So, so would you would you prefer to be talking about Charles A. Murray or or the guy that we're talking about, Douglas Murray? Because I'll be honest with you, I'll take Charles Murray, Charles A. Murray over over him any day because at least he's making arguments and there's there's a way to to go back and forth with an individual like that. The people that we're faced with now, Gavin McGinnis, uh, this guy, it, 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 they're not they're not really in it for intellectual combat what they're in for is self-commodification and being able to make themselves wealthier yeah i, 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 I think that's true sorry go ahead Beth. oh no um no that's okay you you, you see what you're going to say Dudley. we should actually move on to the next caller because i do want to ask you guys one other thing and i know we want to get off the next few minutes so what were you going to say about no, uh, first off, I was going to say that uh, if you're looking for a really good rebuttal, uh, I'm Charles Murray. Um, yes. Nathan, I think, has the best one available at Current Affairs, so you should go right. check that out. Yeah, it's called you know, Why is Charles Murray Odious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, uh, no, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely love that article. It has uh, um, the uh, – my uh, – I, let, let me put it this way: I think if I think that the the thing that you end up focusing on in that article is the what, what's it called, it's like on human achievement or of human excellence or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, if he was going into intellectual combat when he wrote the book, he was going into it with a butter knife because his because uh, uh, like one of his arg his arguments, as I recall from the from uh, from your article, his. Uh, his argument for the uh, intellectual superiority of white people, one of them in the book, is uh, is that he measures the significance of your contributions to culture by uh, adding up all of the inches in the Encyclopedia Britannica taken up by people from each group, which is already rigorous enough to start with. But then, like, he counts classical composers' Encyclopedia Britannica inches, but then just sort of declares by fiat that jazz doesn't count. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I should say, like, these kind of examples are played in all of his works. Like, in the bell curve, he just has a chart that's called uh, middle-class values, right? Uh, and apparently, your propensity to be attracted to middle-class values increases with your IQ, so-called, whatever that means, right? Uh, but I will say, just in answer to your question, that Murray is a more rigorous thinker. Uh, I mean, I think he is odious mm -hmm. and racist uh, in exactly the ways that Nason described. But he is more rigorous uh, to pay the devil his due than someone like Douglas Murray. Uh, I mean, yeah, I remember there's a right. section in the bell curve where he says, look, I think the most effective argument against my position would be the Rawlsian argument, and I think he's correct against this, uh, about this, uh, where you might ask, you know, well, why does it matter uh, why there's some people have higher IQs than others? Isn't that just morally arbitrary? Uh, and he says, I wonder why it is that nobody's ever actually made that argument against this. And that takes a little bit of intellectual verb uh, in order to be able to engage that way. Murray is a much lazier Douglas Murray is a much lazier person than someone like Charles Murray because he's not even willing to go that far uh, to at least contemplate arguments against his position that would undermine his fundamental outlook. Uh, yeah. So that's not the case of Charles Murray. Although, <laughs> he's odious even, and racist. You know, just pay homage to, you know, some rigor at least. Although, although even in an indication of how intellectually or how interested in debate and combat Charles Murray is, he's read my article. He tweeted about it, and his only response was, I guess I'm odious. <laughs> yeah, there you go. yeah, yeah. Um, which again, you know, I mean, come on, free speech. I am, I am 100% sure. And look, I don't always agree with Nathan on issues that are related to this. 
talked about this before, but I am a hundred percent sure that you would platform him on the Current Affairs podcast if he wanted to come on to uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> on an to, to talk about this stuff. So you'd think that as a uh, as a free speech enthusiast, he'd be into that. But in any case, uh, Chase, what's on your mind? Hey guys, how you both doing? Hey Chase, yeah, thanks. Hey, have you are you guys familiar with uh, Brando uh, Brandolini's Law? I believe it's called. No, what's this? Hey. It was um it was a dictum invented by an Italian computer programmer while he was watching uh, Berlusconi on TV, and it states that the order of magnitude for energy it takes to uh, refute or debunk bullshit is always greater than it is to produce it. Um, I've been thinking about the entire time during this conversation, and I think you know it's related to both the previous callers what they were saying, and this is important. It's really important. These people are bullshit artists. They are charlatans before they are anything else. And we're in a constant double bind with them because no respectable conversation should tolerate these awful opinions. They're laughable out the gate um, and they don't survive the, the just the tiniest bit of scrutiny from people who have actual knowledge on these subjects. The problem is, though, that the second you refuse to acknowledge them or refuse to debate them um, or even, you know, laugh at them, you're playing into their branding exercise, which says, oh, now I'm being silenced. See, you know, the establishment or the great liberal conspiracy or whatever it is that day is coming down to crush me because they can't tolerate the truth. When, in fact, it's just, you know, Douglas Murray is lazy and uh, he's trying to sell books to, to people who, frankly, don't know a lot about the history of the big air quotes, you know, West. And I don't know what to do with that, because on the other hand, we can't spend all day refuting these people. Um, we'd have no time for anything else. But the second you <laughs> well, try to do something else... I mean, you tell you me know. that. Well, we... <laughs> That's kind of what we do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everybody can't spend all day on it. Maybe we could have a division of labor, and some people can spend all day on it. I mean, I guess the one thing I would point out with regard to this question is that, um, like, there's a reason why Murray is uh, unlikely to acknowledge the existence of this review. There's a reason why, even though it was uh, it was uh, James Modern Advance's idea. Uh, I am not optimistic that 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 conversation is coming together uh, because uh, because I think they I think they do realize on some level that this kind of engagement would make them look bad. Right. And I think that they're 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 correct to, um, you know, they're correct to think that all of which makes me think that there is some utility in having some people, uh, not everybody, not most people. But uh, some people sort of uh, take on the task of. you know, of uh, of of responding to them, you know, which which I, I will say, I mean, like I do a fair amount of, but both of these guys and uh, Rob Larson is the third person I put in this category uh, do uh, like way more than I do. Like I, I uh, <laughs> you know, I don't read that quickly, right? I got to, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take in like 50 right-wing books in a year. Uh I also maybe don't hate myself quite enough, but uh, but but I try to I try to read a few uh, just to right, just right. J- just to sort of keep myself honest. 
But uh, but yeah, Chase, Chase, do you want to do one last follow up, and then I wanted to. I, I know we want to get off, but I did just, just want to switch gears for one last question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I mean, the point is is that they will never actually address in an honest engagement the substantive points that they're making, or the you know the irritable mental gesticulations which are supposed to take the place of an argument uh, that these people do. But you know, they'll always just retreat to the position of, oh, I'm being mocked, oh, I'm being silenced, you know? Uh, it will never be an honest engagement with the ideas because, again, they're bullshit artists. They're there to performatively be silenced and then get people to buy their book based on the outrage of that. Yeah. Yeah, and just to add something, like, sometimes this can get really obnoxious uh, and, frankly, outright dishonest. Uh, just to go back to our favorite, you know, lobster lord, Jordan Peterson, uh, Jordan Peterson repeatedly said on Twitter before he got banned uh, how no leftist wanted to debate him. Uh, and of course, every time he said something like that, there was just a line of people who would either say, we would debate you, uh, or actually, we already had hashed out an agreement to debate, and then you backed out of it. Uh, but none of them was quite as egregious as what happened with Nathan. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, Peterson actually publicly said, let's have a conversation. Uh, because you've been critical of my ideas, and boy, was Nathan ever critical of them. Uh, Nathan responded, yeah, let's do it. And, well, you know, Nathan, you tell the rest of the story. Like, well, so you know, an example of what you're talking about, right? How this whole, nobody wants to debate me because I'm just yeah. such a high IQ maniac uh, is profoundly false. There's yeah. not much else to it. Uh, you know, I responded and said, let's do it. And I emailed his uh, media page on his website a few times is all I can reply to his tweet and uh, crickets, you know, and, uh, and, and that's, and that's the problem. I've had that with Ben Shapiro too. People have tried to set up debates and, um, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro at one point invited Matt Brunig on his show to discuss uh, yes. socialism with him. Never, never happened. They do back out. But the point is that I think there is a cost for them um, among some people, right? They, they their audience some people are going to keep listening to them, but there are other people who are open-minded people who will see that behavior. And if we point it out and we show that there are all these refutations that they can't respond to, their, their, their whole p posture of the left won't debate us, they have, they're afraid of us, um, will just crumble. It will be so easily exposed that it won't work on some people. No, I, I think... I think that's right. Um, I, I should say the Matt Brunig thing, as I recall, what happened with uh, with Matt was that uh, Shapiro had invited him, and then Shapiro, I guess, probably did some more research, got nervous, and said, "Oh, I actually want to have bring this other guy into the discussion too, this third guy who was going to be on like Shapiro's side." And Matt said, "Oh yeah, no, I've addressed what that guy says in a bunch of places. You know, here's a link." And then Shapiro, I think, sort of quietly slunk away into the night uh, and, uh, and, never, uh, and never arranged it, which is pretty revealing. But uh, we are past 6.30. I know we were, gonna, we were planning to cut it at about 6.30, but uh, if you'll indulge me just a minute longer, uh, there, is, there is one thing I did want to, want to broach about the, um, uh, the article, which is at the um, very end or near the very end, uh, you talk about... Murray's criticism of uh, of advocacy for for reparations over slavery or Jim Crow, mm. and um, and and I am curious about something because um, because the way you sort of 
respond to it, and I think this is fair enough as a critique of Murray, is to say, well, um, you know, the uh, essentially, I mean, this is a paraphrase, but you can tell me if this is like a reasonable paraphrase, is essentially, look, dude, I thought you were super duper into property rights. Um, and um, and if you really believe that, right, I mean, if... if uh, if I steal something from you and then like I pass it on to my great grandchildren, you know, your, uh, you know, your, your descendants could still get it back. Right. You know, that that's, uh, and so on, on, uh, on property rights, you know, ideology, you know, there's a, there's a good case to be made for it here, but you could also flip that around a little bit in the sort of way that like, uh, Adolf Reed, who I'm actually writing something about for, for current affairs, um, has has made the sort of opposite of that point, which is like, okay, from a from a left wing perspective, do we really want to make um, sort of what we think about distributive justice? Do we really want to sort of conceive of this as like a tort action, right? As like uh, as like essentially as a matter of like intergenerational property rights, or do we want to say? I mean, this is a, maybe a goofy way to put it, but maybe it gets to the point. Look. Imagine that we uh, imagine that uh, the world had been created five minutes ago in exactly with exactly the distribution of wealth that it has right now. So it did not happen to originate from all these historical horrors. Of course, in real life, it did. But if it didn't, we would still, I presume, find it just as objectionable that uh, that. Um, you know, there's a segment of the population that, you know, that, that has to live in poverty and et cetera, et cetera. So I just wondered, I mean, I know that's a big topic and, you know, but, but I just, it's something I was thinking about when I was finishing reading it. And I did just want to give you guys a minute to sound off on it. If you're so inclined. Well, I, 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 I'm going to give a little bit of an unsatisfactory answer because uh, the, the fact is that, yeah, I think, I think that's a, a debate you can have is that, uh, do the principles of socialism already get you to whatever reparations for slavery in particular would get you to and therefore render it essentially irrelevant, which I think is, is Reed's point. And, yeah. um, and, and as a discussion between socialists, I think that I, I, would, I would, you know, it probably does, it probably does get you there. Um, however... <laughs> The, I mean, the main critique of Murray here is that he doesn't deal with any of the strong arguments against his position. Now, if we're just taking strong arguments against his position, that he makes the case that the reparations are not owed because he, we oh, we don't know how to track down the people. It's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and you say, well, okay, but we do, we do, we we have a we have an obvious measure of the damage caused by this crime, which is the, the black-white wealth gap, right? That right. wealth gap has been continuous since the time of the Civil War, and, if you, and, you, and you could measure the amount of reparations that are needed, which is the amount necessary to make that wealth gap go away. Now, <laughs> are you, and so, but he won't discuss that. Now, I think Reed's argument, I, I'm semi-persuaded by it, although... You wonder if you could apply it to other kinds of tort actions, right? <laughs> Which is like, well, none of these, these, you know, my theft from you doesn't matter because uh, under socialism, we'll have an equal distribution of wealth, right? Every particular crime kind of dissolves uh -huh. if the question is, well, we want a, an egalitarian society on the whole. 
So I don't actually know. I think there's the arguments for it or against it. All right, that's yeah, fair. I'd just like to intervene and say that uh, I tend to be sympathetic to the idea of reparations uh, as a means of compensating for a local or particular injustice, right? Uh, I also think that symbolically uh, it would really say something about trying to exonerate uh, the nation from its original sin, if you want to call it that. Uh, saying that, I don't think that the notion of reparations could be airlifted uh, to provide for a comprehensive theory of distributive justice that would be appropriate to a socialist society. Uh, and one example that I'll give of this is you can find libertarians uh, who are comfortable with the notion of at least some kinds of uh, restorative justice or um, reparative justice uh, that includes things like making payments to African I mean, I mean, in some I'm ways, it's a, very, it's a very libertarian idea, right? I mean, that this is... Um, like it's it's very simpatico to to how they generally tend to uh, to to conceive of things, you know that like um, that like okay, how do you um, like sure the way that things the distribution that we have right now is distorted by bad things that have happened in the past that have that have, uh, have violated our principles. So how do we fix that? Well, we um, you know we go through the libertarians you know, favorite mechanism, you know, which, which, which is the law. And we have a, uh, uh, like, like, like courts, uh, and, uh, and we, uh, and we decide, you know, who's, who's a, uh, who's a historical result of that. But I mean, I, I guess, um, well, I, I just like to follow up by saying there is actually a libertarian thinker who actually takes this question very seriously. Uh, the best libertarian thinker, in my opinion, and that's Robert knows right. Uh, and a kind of famous book, so in anarchy, state and utopia, he says, look, there's no doubt that the property rights uh, and autonomy rights of people of color were profoundly violated and that this has extraordinary impacts down to the present. Uh, and he says infamously, socialism may be too much for our sins, but we're probably going to need to spend at least several generations distributing wealth down to people of color uh, before we create the conditions where a just libertarian society could be established. Uh, now, it's worth noting that a lot of libertarians in the U.S., aren't as sophisticated as Nozick, and they tend to ignore that little bit of his work. Well, I mean, I would actually go, go further and say that there are a lot of libertarians in the U.S., not all of them, but there are a lot of them who, um, you know, not to put too fine a point on this, right, like libertarianism will appeal to many people because they like the distribution of wealth the way it is. <laughs> And um, and so I think you get some unsavory racial attitudes that non coincidentally go with that in many cases. Um, but Absolutely. you know, I do just want to say though, just quickly to follow up. I mean, yeah. like Nathan, my point wasn't really to make in making these kind of arguments uh, wasn't necessarily to really hit Murray uh, on a point about distributive justice because the reality is that his work isn't sophisticated uh, on those points. <laughs> he doesn't really deal with any of this in a very interesting way. Uh, and I mean, it's really child's play to point out, as Nathan and I do. Uh, that he's engaging in very self-serving forms of reasoning. Uh, I mean, his big defense of why it is that the British don't owe anything to former slaves is oh, yes. yeah. they spent billions of dollars paying former slaveholders. Shouldn't we be exonerated from that now? Uh, and I mean, you might have some sympathy for the idea, like, well, what about the billions we paid to slaveholders? I think that I would be a little bit more sympathetic if they actually gave it to, you know, the freed slaves. And there are all kinds of other examples that he never even deals with. Probably the most egregious is the one that I brought up, uh, is the Haitian issue. Uh, yeah. He had an extraordinary revolution. Uh, and, and they uh, had to pay reparations to the French. Yeah, they had to pay reparations to their own slaveholders. Uh, or the French were going to invade them again. And this amounted to about 20 to $30 billion. The Haitians asked for that money back from France in the um, 
20, oh, sorry, the 21st century saying, hey, we had a big earthquake. Some of that money might be very helpful. And the French were kind of like, well, it was wrong. We shouldn't have done that. But what are you going to do? It's in the past now. Right? Uh, and it's pretty easy to point out how these things are just gross miscarriages of justice. Right? Uh, no, for for sure. For sure. I mean, like the... I mean, I, I think it would actually be hard to imagine something more unjust than uh, than, than free, freed slaves having to pay uh, pay reparations to their slaveholders. Um, yeah. I, I think, and, and it also goes to uh, then like some asshole like Douglas Murray is going to come down and say, oh, well, not a lot of Nobel Prize winners in Haiti because, uh, you know, you have systematically impoverished the society. And, uh, and and it has a little bit less money to spend on academic research, uh, but um, and I think that's I think that's all absolutely correct. I mean, I think the you know I I, I think a, I think the worry is more sort of like okay, are we um, like what's the bad thing about like you know like if you're saying like it's clearly true that disproportionate poverty among black Americans as opposed to white Americans uh, is, is a result of slavery and Jim Crow. That's obviously true. Um, I think that the, I think that the sort of more interesting question is, okay, but like, do we think that there are forms of like morally innocent poverty that are fine? Right. If it came about the right way. Right. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, this is where I think the, um, uh, you know, somebody who's like a relatively honest and consistent libertarian like Nozick, I can understand is going to address this one way, you know, but, um, you know, but I, I, I do think there's a, you know, I, I think Nathan's first comment is probably, is probably as good a place as we're going to end on that question. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a big topic and it'd be worthy of an episode of its own. Let's put it that way. Well, it would definitely be worthy of an episode of its own. We'll do that sometime. But meanwhile, it is almost a quarter to seven, and we, and we were going to get off at six thirty. Uh, and as as uh, as Chase pointed out, you can't just refute Douglas Murray all day. So uh, everybody has things to do. So uh, <laughs> we are going to uh, to leave it there. Um, you can uh, uh, you can read Matt and Nathan's article at Current Affairs. Um, you could uh, you could read uh, any number of things by Nathan at Current Affairs, but also you have a uh, you have a new book out. Oh me? Uh, yes. Yeah, I do. Uh, well, it's uh, it's still got a couple months yet. I think it's oh, January. it's got a couple months. Okay, uh, it's January. Responding the right. Uh, well, this is uh, my effort to make sure that I don't have to spend all of next year. Uh, every, all day, every day, reading and responding to bad right-wing arguments. I just picked tw- 25 of the top ones that come up over and over and responded to all of those. So, and um, hopefully, hopefully that'll settle the matter. All right. Uh, and I can say, having read it, it is a really good book. Uh, it's very funny. It's very well-written. Uh, and very rigorous yeah. in the thinking, so people should pick up a copy. Awesome. That's one of, like, three people who read it. <laughs> well, I'll be, I'll be, the, I'll be the fourth very soon. Uh, so, um, so Matt, where can people find your stuff? Uh, sure. Well, I have a few articles coming out in Jacobin soon, uh, and a variety of different outlets. Uh, I also have a book on conservatism, oddly enough, that should be finished. Uh, don't have a release date yet uh, by February. It's the political right inequality turning back the tide of egalitarian modernity for Rutledge. Uh, it's a bit of a different book than Nathan's, though. Uh, certainly more of an academic book, and it's. 
my take on a long history of conservative philosophers, uh, acknowledging some of the good arguments that they all occasionally make, uh, but mostly critically appraising them and showing why I don't think a lot of this lies. Very successful. Which, again, I think if you're going to talk about how much you love free speech, because everybody should be able to hash out all these ideas, uh, you got to get around to the hashing out of the ideas at some point and not spend all day every day talking about how important it is, you know, uh, that we uh, that we have a right to say them, uh, which the and with that little small dash of salt, I will end the episode. Uh, thank you both so much for uh, for coming on.